You're listening to the teachings at Acton Church, a group of real and relevant followers of Jesus. This message, Eyewitnesses to a Dead Messiah, was given by Pastor John McGuire on Sunday, March 29th, 2015, and it's part one of the Eyewitness series. So that, that song kind of captures the fickleness of us, kind of like one minute we're saying hallelujah and uh, hosanna uh, to the king, the next minute we're kind of saying crucify him. It is the account of kind of the last week of Jesus' life. Um, it starts in uh, the book of Mark, records it this way, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and the others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Uh, so when we have the kids kind of like doing this leafy branches thing, it's again just kind of like reminding us about this story. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at the time of, of uh, Passover, and, um, and all of a sudden everyone is so excited that he's coming that this one that they've been hearing about who, um, who has done all these miracles that they've been hearing about and he's on his way in, and um, he's riding on this donkey, and they're breaking off branches, and they're taking off their clothes and laying them down, and there's this big, incredible parade that's happening, and they, those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And they're directly referencing this, um, this uh, 500-year-old prophecy that the king, the Messiah, was going to come in. Uh, the prophecy reads like this in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, there had been building in the Hebrew culture for some time, ever since they came back from Babylon, there'd been building in their culture this expectancy that once again there would be a king like David, there would be once again this Messiah who would bring back the way things used to be in Israel back in the time of Solomon and back in the time of the kingdom. And um, literally, the figure of this Jewish Messiah was one who would deliver the Jews from oppression. He would usher in peace in an olam haba, world to come, this, this new kingdom that he would usher in, this Messiah who would come and set this up. He would start this messianic age, and some people were looking forward to a military overthrow. Uh, they saw the Messiah's coming in and taking, taking back land that uh, the Roman Empire had stolen from them and, and taking back the things Rome had done to them and what these other empires who had preceded had done to them. They had this idea that he would come and he'd establish this Jewish state, this Jewish kingdom. Others, like the authors of Psalm, uh, which is written a, a thousand years, stated that the Messiah would be this charismatic teacher. He would uh, give correct and uh, correct words about Moses and about the laws of Moses. And he would restore Israel and he would ultimately judge mankind. It was this messianic movement. So... The disciples are not literary eyewitnesses, okay? They're not somebody who read about this and um, decided at some point to, to write a story up. These are eyewitnesses. These are literally people who see this happening. They, they're the ones who go and get the colt. They're the ones who take off their coat, their own coat, and they lay it on the colt. And they're the ones who help Jesus get on the donkey, and they're the ones who are walking by Jesus when all of this parade breaks out. 
and these people are yelling, Hosanna, and they're eyewitnesses. Like when we read this story of the Bible, this isn't like some good literature that's been written um, hundreds of years ago. This is, this is purposeful, meaningful eyewitness accounts that have been written down so that we can know. And even to the point where it's such an eyewitness account in so much detail that when we read it, it hasn't even been refuted by the people who were living at that time. It was just accepted. This is what happened on this particular day. There were people and they were calling out and they were saying Hosanna and it was the arrival of who they thought was the king. So the disciples, when they're gathered together at night, maybe it's Monday night or Tuesday night, maybe it's Wednesday night, and uh, they're literally, sometimes they slept under the stars. Jesus had invited them. If they want to follow him, they could have uh, stones for pillows, which just means you get to sleep outside. Um, you won't always get these real nice accommodations because that's what it means to follow me. Like you're not going to be promised uh, a life of wealth, or, but you, what you'll be promised is a presence, uh, my presence to be with you. Um, that was kind of this idea of what it felt like to be an eyewitness. So these eyewitnesses, they were those who had personally seen something happen. Oh, did they ever personally see stuff happen? Like they, they remember the day when he walked into the, to the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. And when they, those in Nazareth recognized him as a rabbi and allowed him to come forward and, and unroll the scroll. And he read this from the book of Isaiah, which had been written 700 years earlier. And it just said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that the, the year of the Lord's favor is on you. And he rolls up the scroll um, and he's supposed to give his interpretation. That's what rabbis do. They, they then tell what they just read, but he, he instead rolls up the scroll and he goes back and he sits down. And it says that every eye in the synagogue was fastened on him. And to which he just said, this happened today. I just did this. Like the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He basically says, I'm the Messiah. I've arrived. It starts today. Well, you know, you're a disciple and you get invited to come be with this guy who says it starts today. You consider it, right? You consider this idea. And so you then observe him. You're an eyewitness because you're so close to him. That's one of the, uh, the rules of eyewitness um, evidence is that I'm close enough to be able to know in detail what's going on. These guys know in detail what's going on. And in one case, they observe him with the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman uh, is, is drawing water. He asks her to draw water for him, um, to which the woman says, uh, as part of her dialogue, I know that the Messiah is coming. She was from Samaria and Samaritan. And uh, Samaria, the, in those, those, that area of the country was the northern kingdom of Israel. And so they always planned that Messiah would come and restore Israel. So they were looking forward to it. She said, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll teach us everything. To which Jesus replies to her, that's me. Like teacher is in the classroom. <laughs> He's just saying like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm he. I'm the one. I'm the one that everybody's been talking about. He just says that personally to this outcast woman. I love this about Jesus. He kind of just, I don't know where you are in life, but understand he steps towards you and he says, I'm the one who can help you. 
uh, I don't know what you're, what you're going through, but I'm the one who can help you. Um, well, you know, we've been talking about it all last fall, about the things that Jesus said. They're eyewitness testimonies when he stands up and says, um, I'm the bread of life. Like, I'm the one who will sustain you. Like, eat from me. Eat from the things that I tell you. I'm telling you the truth. I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm the light of the world. Remember, on the last day of the festival, and they had taken out the light, the big beam lights, and it was dark in the synagogue, and he, he, or in the temple, and he, uh, he says boldly, I'm the light of the world. He's the one who says, before Abraham even existed, I already existed. I'm that Messiah. He's the one who said, I'm the door. He's the one who said, I'm the good shepherd. He's the one who said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He's the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who said, I'm the true vine. Now, this was, this was Jesus, Messiah. And they were eyewitnesses. And they were right next to him. And it's Wednesday. All right, and it's it's Wednesday, and they're just thinking through, like, oh my goodness, and then it came true the the coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, and uh, they're looking around and they're saying all of these things, and they're recognizing these things that the person that they're right next to, he's the Messiah. The Messiah movement is on us; it's happening around us, and we get to be close to him, and we get to be next to him. Well, and then he invites us to the Passover meal, and we eat it together. And he says, there's this new covenant. And he says, we're all in, we'll, we'll all be in this together. In fact, um, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Like, I'm going to get stuff ready for you. And they pray together and they, he washes their feet. And it's just like this incredible eyewitness. Like, can you imagine the Messiah, the one you've been expecting for so long, is washing your feet and he's that close of a friend to you. And so then they go to the garden to pray like he always did. And in the garden, Judas, the one who betrays Jesus, comes and takes him away. That's the story of John chapter 18. Judas betrays Jesus and they witness this happening right in front of them. And they're coming and they're, they're coming to take him away. But they're all, they all kind of recognize he's the Messiah, uh, all of the disciples. And so they're like, he's going to just, he's going to, like, it's going to happen right now. This moment where he takes over the Roman Empire. We're going to be, like, right next to it. How cool will this be? And it, the, literally, the first part of John chapter 18 says that the, the soldiers and Judas are coming into the garden. And they're making all this noise. And he steps forward. And he says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, that's me. And literally, he offers them his hands to be bound. And, and the disciples are like, what? Oh, this is good. He's, he's going to do, they're going to bind him. And then, he, and then he's going to go inside, you know, like he's, he's going to be inside their camp. And then he's going to bust everything. Like they literally are expecting this Messiah to bust loose somewhere. Well, John chapter 18 and 19, you've got to read it this week because this is the week of, uh, that we celebrate what it was that Christ went through and what it was that he did. But uh, the second part then is this being questioned by religious leaders. The most religious one, the most holy one who's ever been on the earth is being questioned by the religious leaders. And they're saying, yeah, no, nope, you're wrong. You're wrong. 
And we, we see that questioning going on. And then we, then we find that one of his closest friends, his disciple Peter, who he always took into kind of like the, the extra kind of uh, the extra entry places, he, the closest of his disciple friends, betrays him three times. Three times he says, I, I don't know. Never heard of the guy. Um, and then... Um, the Messiah gets taken before the Roman proconsul Pilate. And Pilate questions him. We have the actual record um, from the book of Mark when he was before the high priest. He remained silent, made no answer. Again, again the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. Like, he recognized that. To which uh, he said, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. You know, everybody will see someday uh, Jesus seated at the right hand of God. The Bible says that will happen sometime in the future where everyone will see um, that it is Jesus. But he just says this ahead of time. I'm that Messiah, yes. But then the Messiah is crucified. He's sentenced to die. As part of that sentencing, uh, John chapter 19 reads really, really strong. I I want you to hear this, even though it feels like it will be a lot to kind of work through. I want you to hear what happens. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. A flogging was literally a a cat of nine tails. It was a whip that had nine strands and then then, um, nine strands at the end of those nine strands. Basically, it had bits of bone and glass and stone that were embedded into it so that as the whip crossed the person's back, the flesh would be grabbed onto like a cat would grab and it would slash. Uh, If you're a Roman citizen, you could receive up to 39 lashes. If you're not a Roman citizen, which Jesus wasn't, you could receive many more than 39 slashes. With every slash across his back, Jesus had decided that this was the road he would go. Did he have the power? Was he Messiah? Could he have changed everything? Could he have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world? He could have. But he doesn't. Instead, he receives a flogging. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. This crown of thorns is is, uh, some thorn bushes from here outside the church. Uh, tiny little thorns. Uh, in the Middle East, the thorns are easily two to three inches long. That was the crown that was made for him and shoved into his head as part of a mocking. Uh, you say you're the king of the Jews, you need a crown, right? It got really crazy out of hand. Put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. When the chief priests and the other officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law and a custom because he's made himself the son of God. He ought to die. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He was afraid because 
He recognized that he may have in his hands the Son of God. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? To which Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription, and he put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write king of the Jews, but rather this man says he's the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it can be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own house. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Eyewitness, you don't have accounts like what it was written in and how many people read it. How many lashes were, except that there are eyewitnesses. There were people who saw it, restated it, told this about what had happened to this one named Jesus. This eyewitness account of his crucifixion, of his death, and then finally of his burial. But we don't find the disciples being the ones who take Jesus down from the cross. Although it does say that the women were there. That'll preach. Um, But the disciples are nowhere to be found. But there are two religious leaders who have uh, begun to study and begin to believe in Jesus. One's name is Joseph of Arimathea and the other's name is Nicodemus. And they request the body and they take it and they embalm the body. They put it in, um, they put it in cloth, embalmed in uh, a strong kind of salve. Uh, 
to, to, uh, to wrap around this body, uh, to almost uh, put it in a, a chrysalis, in, in a type of, uh, of a cocoon, in a shell. They decoupage him. Messiah is buried. Now, Wednesday night, they were feeling really good about what was happening. On Thursday night, they're a little bit concerned because Jesus has been taken into custody. And on Friday night, on Friday night, when they're together in the tomb, when they're together, rather, in the upper room, and Jesus has been put in a tomb, they're all sitting looking at each other going, what in the world? How did we miss this one? How did we just commit our whole life to this Messiah? I don't know if you've ever been, uh, because I'm a pastor, I often um, get called and uh, invited to a house. I've been invited to a few houses when the person who has died is still right there, uh, right there on the floor. Um, There is a certain kind of sadness that's really incredibly hard to explain that happens in the room. There's weeping, there's yelling, there's oftentimes the question why, there's often kind of like trying to make sense out of what has happened. Uh, we've been there. Uh, Lori, I remember distinctly, all right? I remember those moments where we said, no, Lord, just, just give us one more hour. Could we just have one more hour? There was a few things I wanted to say that I, I didn't say. This is the motion that's happening in the upper room. There's a, 11 disciples who are huddled still in the room that they had purchased for the Passover weekend. And they're all gathered together and they're huddling together and they're trying to make sense out of what's just happened. They fully expected that at some point, maybe even off of the cross, he would just pull his right arm out of the, the stake and pull his left arm out of the stake and he would just step down off the cross and he would just teach a thing or two to a few Roman soldiers. And then he would walk in and he would take back the throne that was rightfully his and he would be the Messiah. And they were expecting that kind of response. But instead what they found was that he breathed his last and he said, it's done. And they sat around there hearing the weeping and the moaning, hearing the sadness. It's a weird kind of moment because it goes from kind of like a whole lot of weeping to dead silence. And then you'll hear someone start to break into it, just a little bit of moaning and weeping again. And then dead silence. And you don't know what to say. You don't know what to pray. You don't, you're just trying to figure out why, what in the world just happened and why are we feeling what we're feeling and what's next? Well, there's this concept among people who refute the resurrection to say maybe Jesus didn't really die, okay? Maybe one of the answers to the resurrection is he never really died. In fact, part of this creed that the disciples' eyewitness testimony that they want to leave with us so that we know for certain is this very fact that Christ died and he was buried. But there's this idea that he didn't really die, he just kind of was passed out like his heart rate had dropped really low and it just seemed like he died. First of all, according to the Journal of American Medical Association in an article that they wrote, he, uh, they just basically said it would be impossible for somebody to survive 
if, the, if what has been spoken, what's been told that happened to him, it was impossible for him to live. He'd have lost so much blood, uh, he would just never have lived. Uh, this, these are doctors saying, just from the evidence alone, just from what was said that was done to him, there's no possible way he just kind of slipped into a slight coma and woke up a few days later. Uh, second problem with the swoon theory or this idea that Jesus wasn't really dead, he was just kind of like in a comatose state, was that Jesus wasn't in this habit of kind of like faking things. He wasn't like a magician. He had all power, dominion, and authority and could take five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 people, which is a great magic trick, except it wasn't magic. It was supernatural power. And he wasn't in the habit of doing that, so why would he start now? A half-dead Messiah can't move a stone. If you're weak from, from the beating, if you're weak from this, you can't move this stone. This is a huge stone. You can't move your own stone and go run off and let everybody think that you, no, 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 this is, did Jesus really die? He was dead. They wanted you to know he died. Messiah died. And he was buried. Uh, it'd be a better story, actually, if Super Jesus kind of busts out of the tomb. You thought you could kill me. You can't kill me. But he doesn't do that. He dies. And he's buried. These were professional Roman executioners. They were good at it. They knew when someone was faking it. They even stuck a spear in his side and if it took too long, the executioners would grab the biggest mallet they could find and break your legs and your arms so that you could no longer lift yourself up to breathe and you would suffocate. Death on the cross was suffocation. But uh, in this case, these professional Roman soldiers identified that Jesus had died. In fact, if you were a Roman soldier executioner and you let somebody live, you would be executed. You would make sure you did the job. There's no early counter story to believe in. There's no record of another counter story. Every time somebody kind of raised a fake story to explain it, at the time, everyone goes, you're crazy. I saw it. He was dead. And even the one that they tried to work up about the disciples coming and stealing his body got refuted even by the soldiers who said, it's just not true. Bound. A bound body, especially one that's been decoupaged, doesn't have a lot of chance to breathe any longer. So this messianic movement at 3 o'clock in the afternoon comes to a screeching halt when Jesus breathes his last breath and he dies on a cross. And they're all like, wait, I, I didn't see that. Like, I don't, I don't understand it. Well, maybe they didn't understand the word well enough. No, no, no. They just really were expecting that this Messiah was going to just take Rome. And when he doesn't, when he dies on the cross, they want us all to know this clearly, that Jesus died, that Messiah died, and he was buried. These two facts become part of what's, what becomes known as a creed. The eyewitness creed, what they started to say to one another, to be sure they understood clearly um, what this truth was. And from A.D. 33, at the time of Jesus' death, 
it starts being spoken and they, they tell people, no, 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 no. Like to, to be clear, he didn't swoon. To be clear, we didn't steal a body. Jesus died and he was buried. They are eyewitnesses to a dead Messiah. So on this particular night, on this particular night, they're in this room. It's Friday night. They've witnessed all of this. And like the explanation of being in a room with someone recently deceased and the people are moving from crying. I've also noticed that in that same room, people will go from crying to silence. And then, oddly enough, someone will start laughing. And you're like, what in the world? This is so inappropriate. Someone's laughing. They're remembering something about the person who's deceased. They remember... And they think about what, it, what Bob must be doing. I remember sitting there and seeing Bob's body on the floor and, and saying, he is having so much fun right now in heaven. They begin to remember the things that have been told them through the time. And I can nearly guarantee you that all those disciples who were gathered there, who were weeping about the death of the Messiah movement, began to remind themselves quietly. I've seen it happen before. Remind themselves quietly about the promises. When they're saying, maybe he wasn't the Messiah. Someone else goes, do you remember though? Way back in the Garden of Eden, they said that he would crush the serpent's head. They, they say, remember that a thousand years ago, David said that there would be spikes driven into his hands, that he would be forsaken by his father. They Just one by one, they just started to say, wait a second, I think it all proved to be true, that he would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Like, all of a sudden, this room that's filled with this, what if we were wrong? What if he wasn't the Messiah? The people who are gathered there begin to quote the scriptures. They begin to remind themselves that all these things have been promised hundreds of years before. That he would be from Abraham, from the line of Abraham. That he would be from the children of Jacob. He would be an Israeli. That he would be in the line of King David. That he would be one who would be uh, uh, turned over or given over by his friend, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that the person who would betray him would have 30 pieces of silver. This is 500 years before this time. Like these things start coming to their mind. And then sometime, I believe, during this time, because I've seen it happen around these moments where somebody just starts quoting scripture. Probably Philip or Andrew, one of the lesser guys, you know, because he was, he actually studied while Peter was busy talking about it. He starts to say out loud, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. He starts quoting something that was spoken 700 years earlier. 
As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of any of the children. No one had ever done anybody the way they had done Jesus um, so brutally. He's just remembering something that had been spoken. He says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. So shall the blood that was splattered and got all over everybody. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. 700 years earlier, this prophet saying, no, he just grows up like a kid. Like we were next to him. We saw him growing up. It was Jesus. He was just little Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him uh, as Jesus is being, um, being brutally beat. And as he's carrying his cross, uh, people had to turn away. Like this is, this is a prophecy that happens hundreds of years earlier about this. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We saw him. We saw him stricken. We saw him smitten by God. Like God let this happen. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was our chastisement. And it, the chastisement was put on him, and it brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, two thieves on either side, his grave with the wicked, and then with a rich man in his death, laid in a rich man's tomb. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit on his mouth, yet it was the will of God to crush him. I don't know, like at certain parts as they're reading the story, flash, the, the flashes of Jesus, of what he's suffered, of what he said is coming into their mind. They're replaying this and they're understanding that Isaiah has written this about Jesus and that they've actually been eyewitnesses of what Isaiah had written about and that the Messiah was going to come and that the Messiah, this would happen to him and that the Messiah would be put to death, not because of the Roman soldiers or not because of Pilate, or not because of the chief priests. But they're sitting in that room going, why did he die? He died because of my sin. They've been following Jesus for a long time, but they've been following Jesus as the Messiah. What they're about to understand is a salvation movement. What they're about to understand is the reason that Jesus hung on a cross and died was because of their sin and their iniquity. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. Yeah, through this death, somehow through this death, through the Messiah's death, many people who should have been declared guilty will be made righteous. I don't know, that's talking about me. That's 2,700 years ago talking about me, talking about Jesus coming and dying for me, for my sin. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The early creed read like this. We find it in 1 Corinthians, this creed. Paul refers to it. He says, I was taught it from the beginning. It was the first thing you all taught to me when I came to Christ. It was something that you had all been saying, this creed. The start of the creed just said, simply said this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, this was the intent of God all along, that the Messiah would die for our sin. And that he was buried. This is the first part of the eyewitness creed. For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the next part of the eyewitness creed together. But I want us to sink deep into this one. I want you to understand, as clearly as you've ever understood anything, that the wrong that you had done against God had separated you from any chance of having eternal life. The wrath of God abides on those who have never believed. So God sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to come and pay for your sin, to make atonement, to pay for the transgression so that you can be made right, so that you can be forgiven from your sin. The early disciples, they wanted us all to know clearly that Messiah died for a reason. Messiah died for our sins. And he was buried. I don't want to give away the end of the story. Next week, we'll share the next part of the story. There's, uh, there's this movie called The Jesus Film that InterVarsity produced a number of years ago. Um, they followed it with something that they called the Jesus Project, which was to translate the Jesus film, the story of Jesus according to the book of Luke, into multiple languages. When they would get it in a new language, they would take it into the countries. Uh, On one of these occasions, they took the Jesus film into a nation in Africa. I can't remember which country it was. But um, they would go to the city center, and they would set up a movie screen, which a lot of of uh, the African countries had never even seen a movie screen, let alone see it in the center of the square. They would start the movie. It would be translated in their dialect, and they would understand for the first time. And in one occasion, the story is told that as uh, people would gather on both sides of the screen, um, because they would set up this see-through screen, and so the, the crowd just kept gathering and gathering, listening to the story about Jesus. And you all heard today how the story about Jesus ends, and it said that as they started to see what this group of people were doing to Jesus, they, they um, started this riot kind of broke out, and people, like, to the point where they had to stop the film. And so then they explained that Jesus had done this for their sin, and 
for the wrong that they had done in their life. And people began to give their life to Jesus just on the basis of this, of this film. And uh, this amazing kind of night would have been complete at that point because people came to this knowledge of that God, that Jesus had come to forgive you from your sin. Then one of the people who had brought the Jesus film goes, oh, wait, don't go home yet. Um, uh, that's not the end of the movie. <laughs> so they start the movie back up, and it turns from this riot to this party because <laughs> all of these people who had now been forgiven from their sins get the rest of the story. The rest of the story is what the eyewitness creed is all about. See, there wasn't any good reason to make up a story about a resurrection. No one had ever done that before. No one had ever risen from the dead. No one had ever conquered death before. No one, it would be a lot easier to make up some other story. But I don't want to give away what next Sunday is all about. All I want to say is that it's a party. It's the rest of the story. It is the next part of the creed. It is what Jesus came to do and why Jesus right now sits at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession for us. The best way to describe what intercession is is he's the one who keeps going before the Father and says, I know their sin should condemn them, but I paid for their sin. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, um, we're here today to remember what you have done for us. God, we're grateful that in your great love, in your demonstration of you love, your love, you gave up your one and only son so that whoever would believe in Jesus would have eternal life, would have their sin forgiven. Um, we celebrate that in this week. We celebrate his death and his burial. And we look forward to celebrating next Sunday his resurrection together. Um, Lord, uh, thank you for moving this from a Messiah movement into a salvation movement and then ultimately into a resurrection movement. Um, we'll look forward to celebrating that together next week. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, who holds all power, dominion, and authority, who has, by his sacrifice, made it possible for us to be forgiven from our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Octon Church, feel free to visit our website at www.octonchurch.org.